Hello and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week we tackle a topic from STEM or related fields and break them down and discuss them in a way that everybody can understand. This week, though, we're doing things a little bit different. I'll be answering your questions submitted over the last week about topics that you want to know more about. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. Hello, citizen scientists. Welcome back to the show. This is Chris, and as you may or may not know, it's just me this week. No Carrie. Mm, Very sad. So this week, I'm going to do something a little different and see how it goes. We're going to have a question and answer session. So over the last week, I posted on Twitter and Facebook page and Facebook group uh, and probably a couple of other places that I've forgotten Uh, to send me all of your science-related questions or questions about the show, whatever you want to do, and that I would read them and do my best to answer them in a solo show. Probably not going to be as long as normal, but that's okay. At least we're getting something of interest, I hope, out to you guys. Uh, So let's go ahead and get started. And let me me first say these are all names I'm reading uh, from online. So if I butcher your name, I apologize. We all know that I am not the best at pronouncing words I've never heard before. So there you have it. Uh, so first up from our Facebook page is Liesl Green. And they say, I'd like to know why does an MRI make different sounds? Uh, That's an excellent question. So the sounds out of an MRI come from two types of sources, mechanical and electrical, and that kind of seems obvious and kind of a cop-out, I know. So let me get into a bit more detail, right? So the main components of an MRI machine are the frame and shell, which you are seeing when you walk into the room. You know, they are used to hold the pieces together and cover everything. You also have a large cylinder magnet Uh, which encircles the entire opening that you lay in and runs from end to end. It's about five, six feet long. Uh, You have a thin radio frequency coil and a gradient coil, uh, and then the actual scanner and, of course, the bed that you lay on. Now, the magnet is so large because it needs to be able to create a very strong and stable magnetic field. And by strong, I'm talking upwards of two Tesla, which is about 20,000 Gauss, Uh, To put this in perspective, your average fridge magnet is about 100 Gauss. Earth's magnetic field at the surface is about half a Gauss. And those really strong penny-shaped neodymium magnets are about 3,000 Gauss. Uh, So we're talking 20,000 at the the max end for an MRI machine. Uh, Though I guess I should stop here since the question is, why does it make different sounds, not please explain to me the technical aspects of how MRIs work. Uh, But some understanding is needed here. So the coils that we mentioned, uh, they're used to propagate electromagnetic waves within the radio frequency into the body, right? And in order to do that, uh, there's a few different coils, basically, for different frequencies and different body parts. So a lot of the noises that you hear is the vibration of these coils as rapid pulses of electricity are pushed through them. So while it can be very loud and sometimes scary if you're not used to that. Those noises are actually a good thing because it's a very easy way to know that everything is working exactly as it's supposed to, right? So you'll get different noises as the different uh, coils are vibrating, 
with the electronic pulses that are basically pushing through them, right? That's sending in these, these frequencies to your body uh, and then being read by the scanners in order to see inside of you. So that's the noises that the MRI machine are making while you're inside. Next up, we have Peter Marsh, also from Facebook. And Peter says, is science correct when it says that the second born is naughtier than their older siblings? And they've got a little laugh emoji. Uh, that's an interesting question. So these types of things always make me laugh. It's important to understand a few things about these sorts of claims. First of all, almost always there's an issue of exaggeration from the media. You know, what happens is there's a single study, reliable or not, will come out. And a journalist will write an article about the study and make the assumption that it's a true thing. Uh, and then a different person will come in and write a snazzy headline to try to draw attention and, and get you to click that article. So in this specific case, there is a 2017 study entitled Birth Order and Delinquency, Evidence from Denmark and Florida, written by a professor of management and applied economics at MIT Sloan uh, School of Management, which I find to be a very interesting place for this study to come out of. I mean, that's not necessarily a reason to question the study, right? You should still look at the study, see how it was done, but it just seems like a weird place for that to come out of. Uh, in this study, they look at statistics specifically from Florida and Denmark. And I went and looked at the data sets, and they're pretty solid data sets. They're over a decade uh, from each place independently. And Florida and Denmark are very different places, which I think is why they chose to choose those two places. But I do find it interesting that they chose to do a singular state like Florida and a singular country like Denmark. Maybe that's just the best place uh, or the best data they could find. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. Um, but they did find that there is a correlation, at least from the data that they were studying, uh, that being the second born has a 20 to 40 percent increase in the likelihood of juvenile delinquency and adult crime. Some things to consider, however, is that there are three other studies from 2006, 2011, and 2013 using data from the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health that find very little evidence to support this connection. Also, this study is a single study with a limited data set uh, that has yet to be collaborated by a follow-up study. So one of the problems that we have in our country with science and really the world is that people want new and novel science and there's a lot of money to be had for original work. Now, I'm not saying that that money is given to give certain uh, results. I'm just saying that money is given to do new work and the results are whatever the results are. But the problem with original work is that, well, it's original, which means it's very hard to find other data to collaborate with because it doesn't exist. There aren't necessarily any other studies to show. Uh, on the flip side, there is very little money invested in follow-up independent uh, studies, which is a very important part of the scientific process, right? We don't just want to do one study that gives us a result. We want to do one study that's an experiment and write it in such a way that our peers can look at it and reproduce those same results through an independent study of their own. If we don't get those independent studies that are backing up our claims, then all we are left with is a single data set uh, as a study, obviously they have multiple data sets within that study, but a single study that was done 
potentially with air and you know that's all we have so it's very hard without having other studies done to back up our claims which we get a lot unfortunately right now but uh so this is a correlation not a cause always important to remember and everybody knows the saying uh correlation isn't causation and that's a hundred percent correct but what people seem to get from that is that there's not a cause so correlation doesn't mean causation, and that's true, but it doesn't mean there's not a causation either. It just means that there's some sort of thing going on here that we should look more closely at, and that there's a highly uh, or a higher chance of causation here than there would be if there was no correlation. So the paper itself lists numerous mechanisms that may come into play. So it's not a matter of just being born second, right? You're not just born second and then you are instantaneously more likely to be uh, a criminal. That's not what we're saying. Uh, it's also better to kind of view it as an increased risk factor rather than a prediction. So there are other mechanisms like how much time is spent with children. Like they looked at the fact that there's a certain amount of time that is taken off for a child from work when there's a, like a two people working in a household. And that when you have a second child that's born within a certain time span of the first, that parent will more times than not continue to take time off instead of going back to work. So that first child actually has a significant longer or more one-on-one -on -one time, or even not necessarily one-on-one -on -one time, but more supervised time from a parent than that second child does, right? And so that could play into it. Uh, there's also all sorts of other things that you can look up that study and read. But uh, so in summary, I wouldn't phrase it as science says. I'd say it's accurate that there exists a convincing study that draws a correlation between birth order and delinquency. So maybe that answers your question. And I'm sure you can take that and make fun of your younger siblings uh, and tell them that you heard it on Dash Science. <laughs> so our friends over at So I Married a Movie Geek, uh, a member of the Podfix Network, one of our fellow uh, podcasts on the network, uh, replied to us on Twitter and said, what is up with this? And they posted a link to an article that reads, Physicists Reverse Time Using Quantum Computer. Now, if you're following any of the news at all over the past uh, couple of weeks, you've probably seen very similar headlines to this. And a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, time travel, right? And that is, that's what it sounds like. If I were to just read that, I'd be like, yep, that's what that sounds like. Uh, so basically, researchers from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology teamed up with colleagues from the U.S. and Switzerland and returned the state of a quantum computer a fraction of a second into the past. That's what this article reads. So what's going on here? Honestly, as I said before, media likes to have clickbait titles that make people read their stuff, and journalists who don't necessarily understand the intricacies of the science they're reporting on like to make it sound more fantastic than it is, sometimes not even on purpose. And I can't blame anyone for falling for it. Newsweek, Discover, Independent, all considered trustworthy publications have published some form of the time reversal headline. So why? Because a scientific reports paper was titled Arrow of Time and its Reversal on the IBM Quantum Computer. That paper also references Investigating Time Reversal and Backwards Time Flow. All of these sound like time travel, yeah? 
The problem, however, is that most people don't have an understanding of physical models. Specifically, they're symmetric on a time axis. What this means is if you look at a certain thing that happens and you cut it down to a small section, you can't actually tell if it's going forward or backwards in time. As an example, if you were to take, say, a basketball and you were to roll it down the sidewalk or road, if you cut out the part where the ball slows to a stop and the part where you are actually physically doing the rolling, right, so you just take it from after it leaves your hand, that whole in-between part of it rolling down looks perfectly natural whether you are playing it in forward or reverse. And you don't really know if you're looking at it going forward or backwards. Once you start to get to the part where enough of the energy is imparted, such as the ball magically starts to roll with no interaction, or the ball starts to roll back up into your hand, you subconsciously start to understand that something is wrong, because we all have a fundamental natural understanding of the conservation of momentum, right? Uh, and we might not know the physics of it, like mathematically, but when we see something, we can tell if it looks like it should naturally follow that path or that movement, right? So if you're looking at a ball on the ground, and it just magically starts to ramp up to speed, rolling off in the distance, when you look at that, your brain says, that's not right. Something should have imparted energy to that. And so that is an indication that, well, actually, we were looking at that in reverse. What really happened is that the ball was losing energy through friction and, and other methods and came slowly to a stop. And that makes sense, right? However, you can say, record something occurring and then watch it play in reverse. Now, you may be seeing the event in reverse, but time itself is not actually reversing. In fact, it's moving forward, and every time you use your device to watch the video in reverse, you're converting energy. Some form of electricity is being converted into other things, and thus you are increasing what's called entropy. Now, Entropy gets into thermodynamics, and that's a really dense topic to discuss here. Uh, but essentially, it means you're moving forward in time. To get a good overview of some of the ideas of entropy and thermodynamics, I just guested on the Mad Scientist podcast, and that episode about zero-point energy should be coming out here pretty soon, and you can give that a listen. But essentially, what they did is a quantum computer version of playing a video in reverse. So Scott Aronson, the director of Quantum Information Center at the University of Texas at Austin, really says it best. He says, if you're simulating a time-reversible process on your computer, then you can reverse the direction of time by simply reversing the direction of your simulation. So because you have complete control over this simulation, you can choose to run it in reverse and see what happens, right? But that's not the same as reversing time. So no, a time machine wasn't invented. No violation of thermodynamics has occurred. It's just more bad headlines from a kind of irresponsible or maybe ignorant media combined with the fact that, well, people in general just don't understand quantum physics. And that's not an insult. Quantum physics is really hard. It takes many, many years of study to really understand it, which most people don't have, right? It's just like anything else from any other field. If you don't spend the time to learn advanced topics in any field, 
you probably aren't going to have a good understanding of it. And the media likes to throw words around like quantum as buzzwords to make things sound cool. So that's what's really going on here. I know. I'm sorry I disappointed all of you. Next up, we have a question from Gorchin Kirishapi, uh, Facebook. Sorry, Gorchin, if I totally massacred that name. Uh, I hope you don't blame me. I've only said it live once before. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he's actually a guest, a former guest from episode eight, where we talked about evolution and how you get it wrong. Uh, and he's also a molecular biologist, which actually matters to this question. So I'm not going to lie. I kind of feel like I'm being set up here, but I'm going to go ahead and push forward and answer the question anyways, because it's a really good question. And I think a lot of you actually might appreciate it. And some of you might not even realize that it's a question to ask. So he says, why are we so concerned about microbial antibiotic resistance, but not resistance to microbial vaccines? Now that's a mouthful, and I'm going to get into this and explain what this means. So don't worry if that just went right over your head. But so he says, what's the difference that makes one a scary eventuality and the other one not so important? And I also like to point out that uh, Emily McNett, also on Facebook, supported this question uh, and thought it was really interesting. So I guess I really have to answer it now. So thanks, guys. Uh, so let's kind of start with some definitions and background first. What is a microbial antibiotic resistance? So we all see the soaps and the gels and the lotions and the wipes that claim to be antibiotic and antimicrobial. There was a big push of these products a few decades ago because they kill microbes. And if you read the labels, they specifically say 99% on contact or something of that nature. So microbes are microorganisms and usually refer to bacterium, which cause disease. So killing them, in theory, helps keep things clean and helps keep people healthy. So what's the problem, right? Well, a few years ago, it was found that when you kill the majority of a population of microbes in an area, you are left with only the ones that are resistant to the antimicrobial product that you used. And you just knocked out all of the competition for the resources. Now, if you remember from our discussion on evolution, actually with Gorshin, uh, you remember that there are a few mechanisms with which a trait can evolve to become dominant within a population. With natural selection, you need a variety of traits, right? So in this case, you have a lot of microbes which are uh, vulnerable to this particular substance, and then you have a small amount of your population which is resistant to it, right? It won't kill them, and some don't. So, left on their own, there's no really advantage to leverage. Nothing about this singular trait makes it more likely to reproduce than the other. And so you have a stable, small percentage that are resistant. Next, you have something happen that causes a differential in the reproduction. So in this case, you kill all of the microbes, or at least 99% of them, that don't have this trait that make it immune. Then you have heredity, right? The remaining microbes are free to grow and multiply without competition of resources. And now what was once a very small percentage of the population is now the dominant strain. If you continue to do this over time and over a lot of area, you have now created a highly dense population of disease-causing microbes that are resistant to one of our only methods of killing them. 
So organizations like the World Health Organization start spreading information on guidelines on the use of antimicrobials in food and animals and cleaners so that we can use them where they matter and use them to save lives instead of just preventing someone from getting a little sick. I think we can see, at least, why this on its own is important, right? So now we've got that out of the way. Uh, what is a microbial vaccine? So as some of you may or may not know, there are a few different types of vaccines. And when I say types, I don't mean as in what they protect you from, but rather in how the vaccine itself is structured. So there are live attenuated vaccines, which use a weakened or attenuated form of the germ that causes disease. And when we say germ, we mean microbe. These allow the body's immune system to become familiar with that microbe and produce the antibodies needed to kill it with little to no risk of being seriously infected as long as you don't already have a compromised immune system or other health issue. There are inactive vaccines, which use a form of the microbe that's already dead with the same intent as the live one. The downside to this is that these can take several doses that because the microbe is dead, uh, you don't get the same protection right away as you would from a live virus. So you have to keep uh, giving that basically that dose for the body to create the proper amount of antibodies in order to recognize it and fight it. Because the body tends not to produce as much antibodies as they are seen as less of a threat um, or just as a foreign body. That's kind of my interpretation of it. Uh, there might be a better answer from somebody more suited to this field than me, but that's kind of how I see it. Uh, and then you have the subunit, the recombinant, uh, the polysaccharide, and the conjugate vaccines which all use some part of a microbe, like a protein or a sugar. And these, very, or these give very strong protections because they're targeted at key parts of the microbe. And because they're only a part of the bacterium and not the whole live microbe, there's pretty much no risk to people with weakened immune systems. So these are the preferred methods of doing things if you can get a result with them, which you can't necessarily with all of the bacterium. So the question is, why are we concerned about microbial antibiotic resistance, which I think I explained well, and, and we understand why that is actually important, but not microbial vaccine resistance? So now, as you guys know, uh, molecular biology and virology is not my uh, field, uh, but I do have some background in the medical industry and stuff that I've picked up along the way. So what I wanted to do was attempt to first answer this question from my knowledge uh, and then go back through and actually look up legitimate valid information to see what the actual answer is. So I have to say I was a little confused by this question at first, right? So I wanted to address it in the various ways I think it could have been meant. The first being we do not fear resistance to the microbial vaccine because resistance is exactly what we are trying to create. The body now resists that specific microbe without affecting the immediate population of the microbe outside of the body. But I think that's probably not what he was asking. Uh, I think if we continue to use this form of vaccination, uh, are we removing the ability for these microbes to thrive while the ones that we don't have a vaccine for that have different traits that allow them to be not recognized by our immune system uh, and don't have a vaccine will continue to grow, right? So I think that's kind of the idea that he's worried about, that we might be developing uh, bacterium that are resistant to our vaccines. 
So to this, the, my first, my uneducated, uh, my uneducated, I'm a physicist, not a microbiologist answer, which you can take with a grain of salt, is that with a antimicrobial cleaners, you are killing the germs with our primary method of killing them, leaving the other ones alive to reproduce and thrive. With vaccines, we are simply taking a part or a whole of the microbe and building our resistance to it. So no part of that removes uh, the ability of that microbe to exist outside of our bodies. Uh, and also, we use a different, more prevalent strain of the microbe to vaccinate against if some other strain becomes the dominant one. Because our immune system uses a vaccine to recognize an intruding microbe and create antibodies against it, we should theoretically be able to take any bacterium and use it as the base of a new vaccine against it. So that was my uneducated answer. Now, the second answer, which I looked up after forming my own, is from David Kennedy and Andrew Reed, who wrote an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America entitled, Why the Evolution of Vaccine Resistance is Less of a Concern Than an Evolution of Drug Resistance. Uh, which is a mouthful and quite literally the question that was asked, I think. First, I want to point out that they make far more scientific arguments that essentially sums up what I already said. So points to me for totally nailing that one. Uh, they also mentioned that in general, the vaccine resistance is extremely less likely to evolve. Uh, and the overall answer is essentially a combination of that, that it's extremely less likely to evolve. But also when it does, when those bacterium evolve to be resistant to our vaccines, they also tend to be considerably less harmful to human and animal health. Uh, and those evolutions of those bacterium will actually enhance our ability to develop the next generation of vaccines. So essentially what I said, if that particular bacterium evolves in such a way that our vaccines no longer work, there's literally nothing stopping us from using that strain to create a new vaccine. Whereas on the other side, we're using something to kill something uh, and leaving only the things that are resistance to that substance. So the only thing we can do is try and find a new method of killing them, right? So that's kind of, I hope that answers the question. Uh, yeah, so... There you go. I hope that I got that question somewhere in the realm of what you intended on asking. Uh, if not, you can write back and, and explain more or tell me why I got that wrong. But that's my understanding. Hi, everybody. This is I Shake My Head with Lisa and Sam. Hello. Okay. Four things people need to know right off the top, Lisa. Tell them. 20 years, besties. Woohoo! <laughs> Two. <laughs> We're almost 50. No, Samantha, eh. stop that. Just stop that. You're almost 50. Whatever. Ugh. Three. We podcast from my car. We're sitting inside your car right now. Four. We're from Canada. We're from the heart of the prairies. We're from Saskatchewan. And if you're unsure if that's a real place, just Google it. Yeah. But we also bring you a new episode every single Friday. We do. It's about an hour long, but you know what? Time goes by quick. Because <laughs> we're just two crazy women bantering, talking about lighthearted topics. <laughs> talking over each other all the time. <laughs> we argue, we disagree, but we always go back to laughing. We do. We just want to be the least stressful part of your week. Exactly. So you can listen to us on Podbean, iTunes, and any other podcast app that you have. We're all over social media. We're on Twitter, 
Facebook, and Instagram. So this next question wasn't actually submitted directly to the podcast. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with a site called Quora, uh, you can present a question and then you can request people who on the site are considered either experts or at least who consistently answer questions in that field. So somebody submitted this question and then they requested that I give it an answer. And so I'm going to kind of pull that in and use it here because I thought the question was actually really good. And I think it's a little bit of interesting physics uh, and science to talk about that I think some of you guys might find interesting. So the question is, what is the difference between the Magnus effect and the Coriolis effect? Right? Uh, and this is, like I said, this is a question on Quora. So if you don't know what the Magnus effect is, there's a lot of great videos that you can look up. I recommend you go look up the Magnus effect on YouTube and a lot of them involve like basketballs. So like one video that I remember seeing was a guy takes a basketball and he spins it towards himself while he's throwing it off of it's either a dam or a bridge and the basketball goes out and then it starts to curve in towards the bridge. It actually curves. It's not a direct like line and I'm not talking about curving from gravity it's the spin is causing it to curve back around now at the same time you can take it and throw it off and spin it the other way and the ball will actually land much further out than it would if you didn't spin it right so the Magnus effect is a product of air or in physics we call anything of that nature a fluid even if it's not liquid uh, on a spinning body so essentially, because the object is spinning in a fluid, the side spinning against the flow is spinning faster relative to the flow. The speed of the flow and the spin are additive. So if you imagine a basketball that's spinning, you're holding it in front of you, and it's spinning so that the top is going away from you, right? So what it's saying is the top is going away from you, and the bottom is going towards you. So one of those sides is spinning with the flow of air around it, and the other side is spinning against the flow, right? So if you're spinning in the same direction as air, your speed relative to that air is going to be slower than the speed if you are spinning into it, if that makes sense. Uh, the other side of the object, like I said, is spinning with the flow, and this is spinning relatively slower to the air as the speeds are subtractive. So essentially, because of friction, air is deflected down at the back of the object, and because of Newton's third law, uh, equal force is exerted upwards on the object, and or downwards, depending on the direction of the spin, right? So essentially, the Magnus effect is whenever you take a body and you spin it inside of a much larger fluid like air, and it's a product of essentially Newton's third law and friction is what the core parts of the Magnus effect are. Now on the flip side, you have the Coriolis effect. Now a lot of you might remember the old Simpsons episode uh, and the idea that the water in your toilet spins the opposite direction in the toilet depending on which hemisphere you're in. And this has to do with the Coriolis effect. There's also a lot of videos online about uh, there's a guy who's got this metal funnel that he pours water in and he puts a leaf or a flower petal in it and you see it spinning. And he crosses over the equator into what looks like a exactly the same setup and he puts water in it, puts the flower petal in it, and, and it spins the opposite direction. And they say this is evidence of the Coriolis effect. 
uh, which is actually complete BS. That's not true at all because the Coriolis, Coriolis effect is a product of fluids traveling over a spinning body that is much, much, much larger, like the Earth. Uh, because the equator has a larger diameter than the locations that are closer to the poles, right? If you imagine a sphere and you do the measurement from you know, the diameter of a circle at the equator, you get a measurement. But if you move up the sphere, that diameter is smaller, right? So the equator, in order to spin for the Earth to rotate at the same speed because it's connected, the equator actually has to spin faster than the non-equator locations. That means if you take a point that's on the equator and you measure how fast that's spinning around, it's going to be moving around much faster than somewhere further up the globe or further down the globe. So an object that's starting at the equator will have a momentum based on that faster rotation. And as it travels north or south from the equator, it's going to maintain that momentum because we have the law of conservation of momentum. So what happens when you look at that object, its path is going to appear to be diagonal as it moves up or down. Now when you look at a storm system, right, like a hurricane, you'll see that as a product of how the storm forms, the center of it tends to have a lower pressure. As such, fluids uh, like equilibrium, and so they'll move from low pressure area, or they'll move to fill in low pressure areas, right? We talked about, uh, like, if you have a balloon that's filled up with air and you pop a hole in it, it's going to push that air out because it wants to go from a place of high pressure to a place of low pressure until it's equal. So as such... Uh, when that storm moves north or south, those winds and the water that's in it will continue to have the momentum that they had wherever they started on the earth. And so they will try to move in a diagonal direction while at the same time, the fluid is also moving towards the lower pressure at the center of the storm. And this causes it to spin, right? So basically, depending on if you are going uh, north from the equator or south from the equator, this will cause that storm to spin in an opposite direction. So in summary, the Magnus effect is a product of friction between a small spinning object and the fluid it moves through due to Newton's third law of motion. The Coriolis effect is specifically related to fluids moving around a much larger spinning object, primarily due to the law of conservation of momentum. The key differences are what basic laws and the size difference between the spinning object and the fluid. So you can see the Magnus effect on any spinning object traveling through a fluid larger than itself, whereas the Coriolis effect uh, mostly reserved for large weather systems and atmospheres on a planet-sized object. So when you see those examples online of the, say, the toilet bowls or the little funnel that the guy pours the water, the reason why those spin opposite directions is because there's minute differences in the shape of the bowl or there's a difference in which direction he pours the water from. And if you watch, you can actually see that because the Coriolis effect just does not affect things on that small of a scale. Now, that was really dense physics. I understand that. Unfortunately, there's not necessarily a better way to explain that in audio format. So I highly encourage you to go online and look up uh, videos on the Magnus effect and the Coriolis effect because there's some great videos out there that 
are not necessarily dense in science terminology, but are really, really cool to watch. There's one where a guy wraps a rubber band around a large uh, paper towel roll, and he launches it off of a table that causes it to spin, and it actually gains lift and lifts up into the air and hits the wall instead of falling down like you think that it might. So, uh, but yeah, that's the difference between Magnus Effect and the Coriolis Effect. All right, our last question for this episode comes from Chris Bratton from Facebook, uh, also the host of the More Gooder Than podcast, another great podcast on the Podfix Network. Uh, and he asks, what are some science experiments you did as a kid that encouraged you to do what you do? Asking as a dad, too. First of all, that's awesome that you're asking as a dad. Anytime you have the opportunity to expose a child to science in a way that will capture their attention, I highly encourage it. Even if they don't become a scientist, you know, in the strictest aspects of that word, it is an amazing bonus to a child to introduce that curiosity and that love for finding answers to mysteries in life that will help them in literally everything that they do. So great question. Uh, my path to where I am is rather interesting, and actually you can find out more about that uh, in one of our previous episodes about questions to the host. But a simplified answer is, I was given a chemistry set early on, like before third grade, uh, and my favorite experiments were the ones that provided the most visual transformation. So growing crystals, changing colors, uh, I was convinced that I wanted to be a chemist. I'm actually very glad that I changed courses before I got to college, uh, because I realized I hated chemistry class in my undergraduate coursework. You know, I still love the experiments. I love the idea and what it brings us. But for whatever reason, the method in which they teach, like, low-level chemistry uh, is really not conducive to me wanting to learn it. So it was really rough for me. Everything else was fine, but just, oh, man. Anyways, aside from that, uh, I was given an Estes rocket when I was a kid. And I painstakingly took like uh, several days and I put that together by myself. And then I spent months and months and months begging my dad to take me to go launch it. Uh, we bought a couple of motors and finally launched it out in a field. And it was the best thing ever. Uh, unfortunately, my dad at the time was always working two to three jobs. Uh, and he raised me by himself. And so we didn't have much time for things like that. So I didn't get to launch another rocket for 15 years. Uh, when I had my own son, who I believe was somewhere around six or seven at the time. And we have been launching rockets uh, ever since. He's turning 15 next month. And I have to admit, he's getting to that rebellious stage where launching rockets with dad isn't the coolest thing in the world necessarily anymore. But he still loves to build them. He just doesn't want to go out and spend all day launching them, which I understand. But I mean, that gave us almost 10 years of something that we did together uh, and that was amazing and that I think, I hope, will stick with him to when he's older and potentially has a child of his own. So, uh, yeah, I highly, highly recommend rockets for your children, boys or girls. It does not matter. We have young girls who come out and launch rockets with us that love it. We've got young boys that come out and don't like it. Like, get over the idea that science is for boys, right? Because it is an amazing thing to teach everybody. Everybody can benefit from understanding science and from understanding how to question the world around you, how to collect data, look at evidence, perform experimentation, like all that stuff. It is, it is a thing that is for everybody. 
But uh, more than anything else, though, I was always inspired by the stars. I played around with being a doctor and memorizing the bones. Uh, I did 3D animation for a while, half a dozen other things. It was always some form of science or engineering, but the stars always called to me. I always wanted to be an astronaut. In fact, I never grew out of that. I've applied to be an astronaut three times in my life. The first time, I was 13 years old. I sent a letter requesting the paperwork, and I got a packet in the mail from NASA, and it was one of the best days of my uh, young teenage years. Really, I just wanted to see what it looked like, what the requirements were, so I could plan my future out. You know, I sent it in for fun, never got a response, obviously. Uh, I tried again later, after my undergraduate degree in 2015, and again in 2017. Uh, I wasn't qualified, uh, and I knew it. And because basically the requirements are if you have a bachelor's degree, you have to have a certain number of years of experience. And I didn't have that number of years. Or you could have a master's degree with a lesser amount of experience. Now, I had that amount of experience, but I hadn't finished my master's degree yet. Uh, so I don't, uh, I wasn't surprised that I didn't get a call back up after that. Um, but you know, I figured it was good practice and maybe my name would keep popping up in front of somebody somewhere. And I plan on applying again the next time too. And I am now officially qualified at the minimum requirements to become an astronaut. Uh, and I'll keep applying at every opportunity until I'm too old. And honestly, I'll probably keep applying after that too, because you shouldn't give up on your dreams, even if somebody tells you that it's not going to happen. And maybe it won't, or maybe sometime in the future, I will be delivering my podcast from orbit. Yeah, so that's it. That's what got me into this. So thank you for asking that question. Thank you, everybody else, for all of the other questions that you asked. Uh, I love answering questions. So even if we're not doing a special Q&A uh, episode, please, please send me in your questions. Uh, I love talking about science. I love looking up the science that I don't know. I love finding people who have a better understanding of certain fields than I do and communicating with them because it's all about learning. It's learning for me. It's learning for you. And anything I can do to better facilitate people learning uh, really makes me happy. So you can send those questions to me at chris at dash of science uh, at what was it? Oh yeah. Chris at dash science.com. Sorry. I forgot what my own email address was. Uh, you can send it on Twitter at physicist, Chris, you can go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash dash of science. And from there, you can also find our closed, uh, group, our community group, uh, called citizen scientists. You can apply for that and I'll let you in. Uh, you can also get the link to our discord channel and you can ask there, uh, or you can catch us at twitch.tv slash physicist for our occasional live shows. You can ask live there. If we don't get to it there, I'll at least try and write it down so I can get to it later. But yeah, uh, that's all for this week. It looks like we are a little bit shy of our normal length, but that's okay. I think we did pretty good. Uh, hopefully this wasn't an extremely boring episode with just me talking at the microphone at you. Uh, I'm not a big fan of doing solo podcasts, but I wanted to make sure I got something out for you guys this week since we missed last week. Uh, next week we'll be back and we will be doing another Hollywood science episode. I'm not sure what film we will be watching yet, but Carrie gets back from Washington this weekend. So we'll have time on Sunday probably to watch our movie and, and put that episode out next week. We also have, uh, a previous guest of the show, Cassandra, if you remember her coming back, uh, or her on a previous episode. 
she'll be coming back to talk about some genetic stuff. So that should be pretty cool. Um, I'm also working a deal with the Association of Spaceflight Professionals to maybe get one or two people from there to come talk to us about what they do and, and some of the science projects they're working on uh, and a bunch of other stuff coming up too. Um, I mentioned last week that I did the episode with Into the Portal uh, on a TV show. Uh, unfortunately, there was some issues with that episode on their end. Uh, I guess they accidentally deleted their audio. Shh, let's not make fun of them. Uh, so I'll be recording that again with them, and hopefully that'll come out within the next month, uh, assuming that they don't delete that audio on accident again. Uh, I also did an episode with the Mad Scientist podcast, which I mentioned earlier that should be coming out on Zero Point Energy, and I really had a lot of fun doing that, so make sure you check that one out too. Um, and I also potentially have some more coming up with some other podcasts that I've not been on before. And I'll make sure and let you know, uh, when I do those and when those come out, if you actually run a podcast and you'd like to have me on to talk about something sciencey, I love being on podcasts, especially when they're not my own, when I don't have to edit. So reach out to me. I'd love to come on and, and chat with you about whatever you want, even if it's not science, so let me know. Uh, but again, uh, that's all for this week's sake. Mm, I'm running over myself now. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember, live, learn, build. A Dash of Science is written and produced by 5 Hertz Labs. Music for the show was recorded by GhostTube Music. A Dash of Science is a proud member of the Podfix Network. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.